Hey, good morning, Watermark. Uh, glad you all could join us. Um, before we get going this morning, I wanted uh, to make a quick announcement uh, and ask for, I guess, your assistance and your help. Uh, our Mana Ministry has a lot going on. If you're not familiar with our with our Mana Ministry and what it is, um, it is just like a, a a bunch of people who are on a, a, an email list who um, get emails from people who need food, um, people who are bedridden, people who are uh, can't leave their house but still don't have access to food. Maybe they're sick or just had a baby or whatever. Um, and we send them with uh, with either food that we've prepared or we let them prepare it and take it over. Um, and it's it's manna from heaven to these people who need it. So right now we have a large need. We have people who need uh, food brought to them. Um, we have an ongoing need for um, a manna meal train. When I say meal train, I mean like a train of people bringing food constantly. Uh, for Liberty Manor, um, these are people who uh, who are in need. And uh, if you're interested in doing that, if that's something that you could take part in, you just hop in your car. Oftentimes, we have the food prepared and frozen in a freezer at the church. You go by the church, you grab the food, you take it to the people, um, and you pick a time in which you can do that. So, uh, if that's something that you can do, and I think I think you could do it, um, email Mana M A N N A at watermarktampa.com. Uh, they'll get back to you. We'll get this done. Uh, awesome. Today we're in Acts chapter eight. We're actually doing verses four through 25. And it's a really long passage and there's a lot there. I'm not going to actually read the whole passage to you this morning. <clears throat> uh, because it's, it's, uh, I, I kind of want you to read it on your own, honestly. Um, and, uh, and it's a lot and I prepared a lot and I want to launch into it. Um, so why don't we take a moment and we can pray, center ourselves, um, and, uh, I think we've got some interesting conversation today. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come and we gather today as your people, uh, in different places, but we bind our hearts and minds together. We are the presence of you wherever we are. We know you're in the midst of us, connecting us, pulling us towards each other and to you. I pray that uh, you would help us to breathe deep and, and receive the blessings that you have for us. Thank you for whatever health that we have, whatever uh, um, tangible resources that we possess. I pray that we would use both of these things, that we would leverage them for your kingdom. That every single day that somehow we would take some step towards the things of you. Um, as we work towards the healing of our country, of our city, as we work towards raising our families, and as we work towards building community and relationships. I pray that in all of this, you would be present, that we would be led by your spirit, that we would listen to it, we'd be guided by it. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. So in Acts chapter six, um, we saw the first hints of this great debate that would be happening um, in the church. Uh, that was all about the acceptance of outsiders. That's what we're talking about today. I think the, the acceptance really of outsiders is the theme because that's the theme of this passage. Um, the church up until Acts chapter six or so was faced with something um, in Acts chapter six and in this passage, they were faced with something that, that God's people had never before been faced with. Um, and that is the, the opening up of God's people to non-Jewish people. It is something that in all of Israel's history had never happened. Um, there were hints of it that God was going to do this. You have prophets like Elijah and Elisha sort of say in this threatening way that like, hey, if, if you don't 
get your act together. If you don't begin um, to represent God well, God's going to kick the door open and let the Gentiles in. And he said this in like this threatening way. Um, but all throughout the Old Testament, there is this sort of theme that like, no, this is going to happen anyways. And this is the ultimately the plan that God has for the world. Um, and so all over the world, in this particular time and all times before this, if you wanted to convert to another religion, you had to assimilate into their culture. You had to become like them, always. Uh, there were Gentiles who did become Jewish, but they had to assimilate into the Jewish culture, and it couldn't be fully done. They were called Judaizers. Uh, they, they, they had to become circumcised. They had to undergo ritual cleansing. There was physical changes that needed to happen. Um, they would dress different. They would act different and live different. Um, and no matter what they did, honestly, they never could fully become Jewish. They never could be really fully accepted because there was places in the temple where they couldn't go um, because they didn't have the Jewish blood in them. Um, they would never really be considered one of us in, in the ways that Jewish people would talk about themselves. Um, it was more like we admire them for wanting to be one of us. Like what we admire about them is their desire to be like us, right? Um, and then they're like, who wouldn't want to be like us? And this is how people feel. Uh, there's a general sense in a lot of cultures that like their culture is supreme and that um, other people want to be like them. And this is very normal in the human psyche. But in these passages of the text, uh, we have this, these Jewish Christians who believe that they are uh, the restored Israel. Um, they are, you know, they are the restoration movement of Israel, no longer a separated northern and southern kingdom, all 12 tribes now back together, reunited with their Davidic king. This is the whole picture of Jesus and his disciples, right? This is the symbolism of all of it. Why do they have 12 disciples? Why were they all Jewish? Why were they all boys? They represent the 12 sons of Israel separated and bringing, being brought back together around Jesus, who is the temple, the tabernacle, sort of like in the Old Testament, the tribes set up in the wilderness around the presence of God in the temple. Um, and so they are a restored Israel movement. They have 12 tribes. They have their Davidic king. They're, he is ruling from his throne. Um, he is ascended, sitting on his throne. And the earth is now, all of the earth is now God's kingdom. Uh, and so now they are, the Christians are being scattered. It's caused by persecution, but it's also part of the plan of God to, to scatter his people as they go. They're planting churches. They're affirming Jesus as king, proclaiming his gospel that, that Jesus is king. And here's how he came to the throne. And here's what this means for the world. Um, and as they do this, they venture into, for the first time, non-Jewish territory. This is a big deal. Um, and here there's this transformation that begins to happen as they begin to welcome in people who had never been welcomed before. All kinds of people who had not, the, the invitation had never been extended to because they, they weren't Jewish up until this point. All Christians were Jewish. They were considered Jews. They were just another sect of Judaism in their minds. Um, and there's two groups in particular. Uh, there's two different characters in the story, characters. Um, the Samaritans we're counting as a single character, as sort of it seems like Luke is doing. And then there's this other character, Simon, uh, the sorcerer, Simon, the magician, the magi, however your translation is going to put it. Um, and so we're going to look at both of them, and then we're going to make some observations about what we can glean from all of this, about our lives together. So the Samaritans first. Who were the Samaritans? We pick up their story in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 8, and it says this. 
Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So these people hear the gospel. There's healings taking place. People are being set free. Um, they're being released of the demons they've been carrying around, right? Like we all need, right? Um, and there are miraculous things happening with these people upon the proclamation of this new gospel, this, this message of Jesus, the Messiah. If you were an audience in the first century, this would have had a lot more meaning than I think it usually hits us with. It usually hits us pretty light. Um, but if we were the intended audience, this would have been a huge deal. Uh, and the reason is, is because of who the Samaritans were. So we're going to talk about that. Who were the Samaritans? So, um, the identity of the Samaritans goes back to Babylonian captivity, really the, the, this particular time. Um, when Israel was first destroyed, the Jewish people are taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, when these caps, uh, when these exiles happen, it wasn't always all the people that were exiled. It was usually, it started off with the leaders, um, the high class, uh, the culture makers. They were the ones typically that were brought out. The peasants who lived in the fields, the peasants who lived in the high hill country around usually weren't bothered. They weren't in control. They were paying taxes and they needed that tax money. And so typically they're not the ones who are always carried off. And so as it happens, there are a bunch of people who were left behind during the Babylonian captivity um, around the outskirts of Jerusalem. So the city is destroyed, the people are taken away, and there's a few Israelites still living outside the city in the hills, in the sort of the, the plain country, uh, around the city of Shechem. Uh, and these Israelites are gone, who were taken away for 430 years, 430 years. These are all the people, remember, these, these Israelites who were taken away are all the people who did the temple work. The priests who knew everything about the religion, the scribes, the scholars, all those in charge of keeping the story, these are all the people who were taken. And so you have all these peasants, uneducated, poor peasants living outside the city for 430 years without all their culture makers, if you will. And so their culture begins to shift. As the Israelites are moved out, some Assyrians are moved in, um, and they begin to intermingle with these these people, these foreigners who were moved in, they begin to intermarry. Their religion begins to change because remember, they no longer have the guardians of the religion there. They've been exiled. And so these Samaritans, over 430 years, they evolve. They change. By the time the Israelites came back 430, 430 years later or so, um, these people um, had assimilated with the Persians, whom the Assyrians, I'm sorry, I said Assyrians early. It's the Persians whom they intermarried with. Um, they revised the text. They had a new temple. They weren't very Jewish anymore, but they were trying to be the best that they knew how. And so what happens is the Israelites all come home and they begin to rebuild their temple and practice their story again. But there's all these people there who come in and they say, hey, you're back. And they're like, yes, we are. Who are you? They're like, we're the, uh, we're the Samaritans. We're your cousins. We're here. We want to help you rebuild. Um, and as they begin to realize who these Samaritans are, sort of what they would call like a bastardized version of Judaism, they reject them for not being pure enough. And they say, no, 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 you're not one of us. We're the pure Israelite people, and we're back to build our temple. Um, and they reject them 
And this bitterness begins to grow between the Israelites and the Samaritans, their, their lost cousins, the lost sheep of Israel, as Jesus calls them. Um, hostility grows really fast. The Israelites are really quick to disown them and separate them uh, from themselves. Um, and there's these apocryphal books that detail sort of the hostilities between them and how they grew and how they changed. And the Jewish army eventually attacks Samaria on one occasion and tries to wipe them out. Um, and so the Samaritans strike back and they try to sabotage the Jewish temple at Passover. So they enter in disguised as Jewish people and they spread exhumed human bones throughout the temple chambers to make it unclean on Passover, like defiling their, their holy festival and their temple. This is the background. Like this bitterness that goes back and forth is terrible. Lots of people died. There was wars between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, this is the background, by the way, of, of every interaction that you see in the scriptures regarding the Samaritan people, and especially regarding the Samaritan people and Jesus. Because as you pay attention to Jesus and how Jesus treats the Samaritan people, it's different. Um, the Jews actually went out, out, of, out, of, uh, out of their way to avoid the Samaritans. When the Jews were traveling through Samaritan countries, they would go around their cities, even sometimes adding days to their travels. But Jesus entered right into these Samaritan cities, traveled right through them um, and works to bring actual reconciliation between the Jews and the Samaritans, um, which still to this day, we have this phrase that Jesus invented called the good Samaritan. Like when somebody does something really good and something terrible happens and some good person acts in, what do we say? Um, we get on the news and we say a good Samaritan jumped in to help good Samaritan. Now is affiliated with a person who is loving and beautiful and good, and who does the right thing when somebody is in pain. Um, the Jewish people in the first century would be shocked to hear that phrase. A, what is a good Samaritan? What do you mean it's this thing you want to be? How could anyone want to be Samaritan? This is what Jesus does. He takes the tarnished names, the, the rejects, the outcasts, and he changes their identity, not just for themselves, but for the world. And he paints them up in a way that makes them beautiful. And by the way, this is, if this was the work of Jesus, then this is also the work of the church. This is what we should be doing. Um, and so that's what Jesus did. That's who the Samaritans were. And so these Christians go into Samaritan, they run and they flee and they, they pass through Samaritan territory and they plant churches and they welcome in Samaritans and they baptize them and they say, you are one of us. Because that's what Jesus did. So there's this other character in the, in the passage named Simon the Sorcerer, who is in Samaria. Let's read about him. We find him in Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through 13. And it says this, For some time, a man named Simon, who had practiced sorcery in the city uh, and amazed all the people of Samaria, he boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him because he had amazed them for so long, such a long time with his sorcery. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon saw him, saw him, uh, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and the miracles that he saw. So, Simon, the powerful sorcerer, this man there among the Jews, whom the Jews, uh, who, I'm sorry, whom the Samaritans look up to, whom they reviled as like some sort of earthly deity, 
like a messiah-like figure amongst them who had wowed them with his ability to do whatever he did, whatever it was that he did. Um, let's talk about him. Simon, uh, the, the powerful sorcerer, is, is well-known outside the New Testament early Christianity. He's not just a character that's in the Bible. He's also a character outside the Bible as well in other writings. The first major church father, a man named Justin Martyr, whom we talked about in our, here's a plug, uh, Church History for Lunch class, uh, which will be happening uh, this Thursday at noon. Um, watermarktampa.com. Uh, so the first major church father, Justin Martyr, who, by the way, plot twist, was from Samaria, uh, who wrote, uh, he wrote about this guy, Simon Magus. Magus is, uh, is where we get our word from magician, by the way. Um, that is the same guy uh, from Acts 8. He writes, Justin Martyr writes about how he, how this man Simon came to Rome during the reign of, of Emperor Claudius, um, and he writes about some of the things that he did there. According to Justin Martyr, he had this significant following amongst the Samaritans uh, who were living in Rome as well. Um, and they honored him as a god, and they revered him uh, with this altar and with this huge statue dedicated to Simon the Magician, Simon the Powerful Sorcerer. Irenaeus, um, the, another one of our church fathers, also credits um, Simon the Magician um, he credits his original teachings with uh, what would what is basically the forerunner teachings of what would be called Gnosticism, which would become a huge um, group in the early church history that would battle against the Christians for thought. And so, this man has a very storied history in church history. He's not just this guy who passes on through here. And so while a lot of these stories are not actually true that we have from ancient history, they're parabolic. We do know that, that it was Simon, uh, that what we know is that Simon from Samaria had a negative impact on the, on the early church because of some of the things that he taught early on. Um, and all of his stories originate with the, this one encounter with Philip. And so what we are left with is this little small, interesting tidbit of a story we have in verse 13, Simon, uh, he believes and is baptized, like we read. In verse 18 through 23, though, he's actually confronted by Peter, who shows up. Uh, he's confronted for trying to use the Spirit of God for financial gain, um, for status, for honor, which is out of bounds of the early church. It should be out of bounds for the modern church. But we read about that here in verse 18 through 19. It says this, when Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the, the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in the ministry because your heart is not right before God. So what we have here is, is revealed that Simon, the man who worshipped, who, who I'm sorry, who the Samaritans worshipped and followed, um, was a man with a, a lust for power and money, who had power and money. And he tried to use that power and money to keep his status amongst the Samaritans. And Peter rebukes him uh, and exposes his real motives. He's an abuser. He's taking advantage of, of an impoverished and downtrodden people, outcast people. He's taking advantage of them. And Peter says, the reason that you don't have a part of this ministry is not because we won't let you in. There's no physical external boundary here. It's not because you're not good enough. It's because your heart won't let you. 
your heart won't let you. The barrier is not on the outside. You are welcome to sit at the table. The barrier is on the inside. You see, he was captive to his sin. That's what Peter says. For some people, equality constitutes a loss in their eyes because they've been on top for so long. Because they lose the ability to take care of, to take advantage of other people. For them, there doesn't seem to be any blessing in pouring yourself out for other people. For them, there doesn't seem to be any blessing in serving other people. The blessing, the fun, the joy, the pleasure has always come from being served by other people. And if suddenly you are made equal with them, where's the blessing in that? And the Christian, the true Christian, the one who knows Christ, understands that the blessing is in the serving. This is, in fact, what made Jesus the great king of all. Because he lowered himself, he steps down from his throne and he enters into our world, not in the palace, but in the manger, not in the fancy bed of the marble floors and columns, but instead in the barn with the donkeys and the hay and the poor peasants who have now lost their identity because of this pregnancy, right? And it is in the entering into their world and the creating evenness there, God with us at the bottom. That is actually where the blessing lies. That is where the joy is found. That is where the meaning takes shape. That is how you become king of all. The work must be done at the bottom. And so as the Samaritans are being brought in, Simon begins to feel himself being left out because he has benefited for so long from their being left out. And now that is being confronted. And so the barrier is not external. There is nothing he actually must do on the outside for him to be brought in to the church. That work must be done in his heart. He is keeping himself out. There is no one blocking him. See, here's the thing about good news. Uh, for some, good news is that there are outsiders and insiders. And the good news is that they are the insiders. I've seen this a lot growing up in the church. Um, for a lot of people, the good news is that, like, they are on the inside. But the gospel, the message about this new king is only good news. Pay attention. It is only good news if it can be called good news for everyone. Good news is good news for everyone. And when God's message is only good news for some, then it is not good news at all. The gospel of Jesus is actually good news for everyone in every kingdom, everywhere, in every station of life. It is good news for them. And I know some of you are sitting there right now thinking, but wait, 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 wait. Surely there are some for whom this is bad news. What about this oppressor? What about this dictator? What about the Nazis? What about, what about the Roman emperor who has his boot on the necks of the people below him? First off, we have to begin by shattering the illusion that false leaders are happy, that tyrannical dictators are happy, that they are fulfilled, and that on their deathbed, they will look back over their lives and view it fondly. I would argue... They are enslaved by their sin in the same way that this man Simon was. They might be wealthy and powerful, yes, 
Uh, they might be successful and well-known, but they are not experiencing the shalom that God intended for all of us to feel. Their souls are not at peace. They are not satisfied. They are not filled with love. And honestly, I am constantly perplexed by people who try and tell me who Jesus cannot save. That perplexes me sometimes. Those who I should not be so loving to. We all have a tendency to miss what God is doing. We all do at every station in life. I've been reading a lot of uh, uh, Jürgen Moltmann this week, if you've been following me on, again, I reference it regularly, the Facebooks. Um, I read a lot of, of uh, this week, I read a lot of, of Jürgen Moltmann. And if you're not familiar with him, let me tell you about him. He was, um, in 1926, he became a soldier in Hitler's army uh, from 1926 onwards. And eventually, through the things that he took part in, he came to the conclusion that he had unwillingly, unwittingly served evil. Because oftentimes when you're, when you're in evil, when you're dwelling in evil, you don't realize the evil of it. By the way, this is the nefarious nature of white supremacy. That those who are wrapped up in it are incapable of seeing it until they step outside of it. Um, he came to the conclusion at some point in the German army that, that he had unwittingly served evil. And eventually he became a, a prisoner of war in Great Britain from 1945 to 1948. And when he was there, he started seeing horrific photographs of uh, places like Auschwitz and the Belsum concentration camps. And he fell into deep, deep despair, depression. He eventually was given a Bible by an American chaplain while he was in this prisoner internment camp. And, uh, and he discovered the life and the teachings of Christ. And, 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 and through studying Jesus' life, he was incredibly changed. He, here's a quote from his. He says, I, 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 my, I myself was gripped by a new hope, which enabled me to survive. The hope, um, that hope was the hope of Christ. In 1964, after becoming a well-studied theologian, um, he wrote his first publication that was called The Theology of Hope. I highly recommend it. It's brilliant. And he writes this. He writes, from first to last, and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is, is, eschat is eschatology. It is hope. And when he speaks of eschatology, he's not talking about end times events. That's how we tend to um, interpret the ideas of eschatology. He's not talking about end times events. He's talking about the announcement in current history of future possibilities. The announcement that right now, as we look around at our world, that the message of Christ also tells us that things here can be made better. Not just that there is life after death, but there is true life before death. The future is not fixed. The future is open to new possibilities. Um, obviously not a Calvinist. Um, the theology of hope has a here and now focus. Um, it not only... It not only brings hope to the believer in the present, but it energizes the believer to actually work to bring about this future hope. Um, it rises up on what, Moltmann, what um, Jürgen Moltmann calls um, a passion for the possible, the things that are possible in the world. This is what these Christians had as they marched into Samaria, fleeing for their lives. They look around and they could see what is possible. That no longer are these separations required that the world can be actually refashioned and remade in the image in, in, of the teachings of Christ. As a man who, who originally stood with Adolf Hitler, he was acutely aware 
that he has stood on the side of, of the oppressor of World War II. And one of the things that he discovered is that oppressors also suffer. This is what he came to see. Jürgen Moltmann, the ex-Nazi, confesses at one point, he's like, look, this is hard to understand, but the oppressor is suffering as well. And it's hard for us to have any pity on the oppressor. Of course, totally understandable. But the phrase that Jesus is king, it's not just a phrase for the downtrodden and the lost, like the Samaritans, but also those like Simon, those doing the trotting. This goes for men who don't view women as equal with them in the church, in society. Jesus wants to save you from that. He wants to rescue you from that. You're in bondage. You're enslaved to something that you cannot see. Jesus wants to save you from that. It goes for uh, white Americans who are fearful of, of one day being the minority. <sighs> Jesus wants to save you from that fear. He wants to fill your world with other perspectives of himself. So that when you sit at the table, it is not only the food that nourishes your soul, but also the conversation and the viewpoints, the relationships that you will build because the world is changing and all the blessings that are now open to you that were not open to you before because you were at the top. This goes for ones who, all those who like the exclusivity that they find where they are, those who enjoy being with people just like them. This goes for all those who are the intellectual elites who fancy themselves as highly educated, but who have missed the wisdom of the elderly poor, who are grounded in the wisdom that comes from struggle, from generations of struggle even. There are things that you cannot learn in books in school. There are things that do require books and school to learn. But there are things that you cannot actually learn from those. There are things that money cannot buy. And there are things that you need money to buy. You see, the gospel changes our entire perspective of everything. And it brings all those people together at the table so that all these perspectives are seen and used to nourish each other. Jesus wants to save you by including others, poor Samaritans and wealthy grifters. Jesus wants to save all of us. There are ways that the ministry of the kingdom is not open to each and every one of us. But the boundary is not on the outside, it's on the inside. The gospel says that there is redemption and restoration available even to them whoever's in your mind. When Paul looks at his audience, he does this in Romans, he does it in Acts 16.31, he says, when he looks at his audience and he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We like to read that as this statement, um, sort of an exclusive statement. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We put the emphasis at the beginning. Um, but when Paul was actually saying this, he was saying this in a way that opens doors for people, people who hadn't been included, people who didn't belong. When he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you too can be saved. You too, even you. That's how this was received in the ancient world. He was saying, 
You don't need to be Jewish. You don't need to disavow people. You don't need to change your physical appearance. You don't need to excommunicate anyone. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you too can be saved. You don't need to become like us. You can be saved. Jesus is your king too. You are in too. The fact that someone in the first century, like this message, that someone could be included by simply desiring to be included. That was shocking. It was unheard of. The fact that Jesus had knocked down the boundaries, torn down the curtain and the walls that separate the Jews and the Gentiles. It was shocking. One of the ways that the church brought salvation to the world and continues to bring salvation to the world if it's being practiced right, is by including people who have not been, been included, reaching out and bringing them in, lowering ourselves and washing their feet. It's for the high up, the powerful, to lower themselves to others. What was it that these apostles brought to these Samaritans? What was the big message that he brought to them? This hated, outcast group who never had a seat at the table. What was it that he brought to them? Well, the good news that they brought is that God is like Jesus. They never knew this. They had ideas about God passed down from generation to generation. But if God is like Jesus, this changes everything. This is shocking. If God is like Jesus, then what we are left with is an ever-expanding kingdom of God. And if you are out there and you are watching this and you can hear my voice, then you must know that this is good news for you too. That you are being, invite, being invited in. No matter where you came from, no matter where you were raised, no matter the life that you have lived, you, the kingdom of God is for you. It exists for you. You are welcome to come to the table. And if I stand before God one day and he looks at me and says, you know, you know, Tommy, you loved those people too much. I'll try not to smile too big. God is like Jesus. And if God is like Jesus, the kingdom is growing. The kingdom is expanding. And if God is like Jesus, then one of the works of the church is to bring salvation through radical inclusion at the table. Every tribe, every tongue, from everywhere, every culture, brought together so that you can be blessed by the words of God spoken through the mouths of your former enemies. Let's take communion, shall we? There are two elements. There's bread and there's wine. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. All of this done as the good gift, the Eucharist, um, for you, for your salvation, for your healing for the forgiveness of your sins and the reconciliation of you to the Father and to the people around you. And so let us take a moment and recognize the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ poured out for us. Do this in remembrance of Christ Jesus. And with that, and with that, let us uh, end with our colic prayer today. Pray this with me.
God, our rock, who shepherds us through the desert, give us patience in the times that we feel lost. Remove our focus from what is gone and remind us of our blessings. Lift us up when we are down. Renew our hearts and minds with your word. Grant us the eyes to see to where you are calling us. Bolster our faith. Guide us to our purpose as we become one people, bringing your kingdom to earth. In the name of Jesus, amen. So Watermark, I miss you. One day we will be back together, but until then, we will continue to practice being the people of God, listen to each other, accept each other, love each other, pour yourselves out for each other the way that Christ has done for each and every one of us. Grace and peace.